What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> That's crazy, though. Well, I mean, King Tut was worse. Then he yeah. married his half-sister, and they had two stillborns. Both of them, Oof. both of them couldn't. I mean, just you can't, you know, you yeah. can't have that. Right. All right, well, let's get started. <laughs> yeah. so, all right, so jump into the podcast. I'm Chase Winnegar, host of the podcast, co-host Lee McClellan. Hope everybody's doing well. And then today's guest is Cody Roden. Cody, Hello, everyone. Yeah, tell us what you do. So I'm a small game biologist uh -huh. for the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, um, and we look after the rabbits, bobwhite, and tree squirrels in the state. Okay. Um, and we also administer the mass survey. Okay. So, and I'm sure, so me and you hadn't met before five minutes ago. Where are you from? I'm from East Central Illinois, so okay. I grew up on a row crop and cattle farm, okay. small cattle farm. So similar to here in the bluegrass region. Oh, very similar, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so are you based out of Frankfurt now, or are you working out of... Mm -hmm. You yeah, are based um, out of Frankfurt? Based out of headquarters here at Frankfurt. Okay, cool, cool. So here's my plan for the podcast. You guys tell me if you like it or not. We had our live fall hunting call-in show this past weekend, mm -hmm. and there were questions that didn't get answered on the show. We just didn't have time, right? Mm -hmm. So I've got some of those here that I think we can answer. Yeah. So we'll go through these. Then after that, talk about the mass survey and some small game opportunities. Mm -hmm. For sure. And then wherever it takes us, and then sports at that. So yeah, <laughs> it's an ugly weekend for that. Yeah, but we we do a little five minute segment at the end. On maybe maybe five. And yeah. We're typically. I think I got the last one right when I said mm -hmm. Clemson and UGA were both going to beat down our local teams. Yeah, it was an easy call. But yeah, all right. All right so well, defense play better. You can defense play better. Yeah, time. we just got worn out. But we'll, that's yeah. lastly, we can't yeah. give all of our sports stuff now. All right. All right. So I'm going to jump into some leftover call and show questions first. And we'll see if we can answer these. If we can't answer them, I bet you we can tell people how they can find out an answer. So, yeah. this is a weird question. This is from Buster from Buffalo. And he wants to know, are you allowed to shoot a squirrel in a tree with an apple in its mouth? <laughs> yeah. Is there any? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> would it be any difference in having an acorn? Yeah, no, is, there, is there any difference at all there? So, yes. Yeah, you can, yes. I would say, yeah. And no matter if you, like, you can shoot a, I've shot plenty of squirrels with walnuts in their mouth. I don't see oh, why it matters sure. whether they yeah. see them up there cutting on a walnut. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can, but Buster. Walnuts are dropping, by the way, I've noticed. Oh, yeah. yeah. I went and yeah. found some Buckeyes, some walnuts. I found, I mean, I was at Mammoth Cave yesterday. Found a ton of acorns. I mean, all kinds of acorns, too. Oh, yeah. But, so I that, mean, I also see a lot of oaks without them. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Daniel from Boone County. If I own the land and I post it for no hunting, do I still have to wear orange during gun season? That's a hard yes on that. Yes, yes. for sure. That's for a, sure. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you have on the land and you post it. That's, say, that's actually something that our game wardens are really, you know, they're strict on the orange. You've, you, that's a no, safety no issue. So you, you have to have it on when you're walking. A lot of people think, well, I just put it on when I'm in the stand or I take it off when I'm in the stand. No, or, mm -mm, from no. the time you leave no, your vehicle, the time you get back, it's got to be on. I've talked right. to game ones before and they say that's pretty much an automatic citation. If you don't have the orange on, that's one of the things they will get you for. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. All right. Hopefully you know this question, Cody, because I don't. This is Matt from Facebook. How do armadillos affect other wildlife in Kentucky? Oh, that's a really good question. And that's something I think that um, we'll know more as they get more populated in Kentucky. So they're obviously in Kentucky. They've been moving north for the last many years. Where are they right now? Um, I saw probably, one uh, when I was going to Arkansas. I saw one in West Kentucky. They're, they're yeah, in, West I've, Kentucky, seen, them, I've sure. seen them in Western yeah. Kentucky. But I, I saw four total on that trip, three in Missouri, one in Kentucky. No kidding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're all the way up into South Central Illinois, Indiana. Um, and so as far as Kentucky, I'm not quite sure where all they're at. Obviously, yeah. um, West Kentucky for sure. There was a road kill near Moorhead a couple no of years kidding. ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I know that they're down there around, all, as far up as Nolan mm -hmm. Lake type area for sure, mm -hmm. Green River. They're, I know they're in that area. I've seen in the spring, I guess it might be their mating season, but I'll see a ton of them dead on the side of the road. Like in, uh, I think it's probably May when we typically take a drive I down saw there. a lot dead this when I went out to Arkansas. No like, kidding. In the beginning of the month, here, two weeks ago. Any idea how they affect the other wildlife though? So they can put a herding on um, anything that nests on the ground. So quail, so rabbits. They're egg like eaters? That. They can be, yes. Okay. Um, and in places in the deep south, um, they they are in a much higher density than they are in Kentucky currently. And they can put a herding um, on bobwhite mm -hmm. and other animals, other songbirds that nest on the ground. Mm. Okay. Um, and they generally, they're rooting around um, on the ground looking for tubers and grubs and stuff like that. And so they do cause some level of disturbance. Again, the 
likely not at a density in Kentucky at this point in time that they would be, um, you know, harming a lot of stuff, but mm -hmm. um, they could move okay, forward into the future. Yeah. What do they directly compete with for food? Are they like a possum or a... I'd say most like a possum. Okay, that's um, what they remind me. It's just like a little armored possum is what mm -hmm. an armadillo reminds me of. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll go on to another one here. William from Muhlenberg County. How are the population of rabbits doing in western Kentucky? So, the rabbits in western Kentucky are doing pretty well. Uh -huh. um, we see ebbs and flows. Small game in Kentucky move along kind of a seven-year cycle. Um, and I believe we're creeping up out of that... Um, lower spot. The lowest spot, okay. yeah. And so, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it rabbit hunting this year should be really similar to last year. Um, as far as we have the two ways we kind of monitor the rabbit population in Kentucky, the rural mail carrier survey where we have um, rural mail carriers go out and they record how many rabbits and quail they see on their daily routes, huh. and then also our hunter logs. So we have a group of volunteer um, hunters that send us in a diary type log about how many rabbits and quail and squirrels and grouse they see um, on their trips afield. And so from that information, um, we know that uh, last year was um, kind of hurting for quail um, this year for rabbits, or last year for rabbits. Um, it was pretty decent statewide, huh. especially in the West. Um, and uh, this year again should be about so, the same. So how does that real mail carrier system work? Do all mail carriers do it? Um, no, it's on a volunteer basis. And again, um, we send out about around a thousand cards and we get back about 600 filled out cards. Oh, that's not horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, not horrible. And, the, and the, the routes vary, so some rural mail carriers might only have a 30 mile route, others have up to like a 120 mile route, mm -hmm. and they'll just record um, in the last full week um, of in the summer, last full week in July, they'll record the number of quail and rabbits they see okay. on the routes. So that's kind of cool though. If I was a mail carrier, I'd definitely be interested in mm -hmm. doing that. I mean, I'll probably be paying attention to it anyway, but this way I can mm -hmm. count it and yeah. do something good with it. Mm -hmm. All right, next one. Not all these are going to be small game related, but mm -hmm. we can try to answer them. Mike from Breckenridge County, can you harvest your limit of deer in a Zone 2 county and then go to another Zone 2 county and harvest more? And I believe that's a no. no. In Zone 1, where it's unlimited harvest, you can, mm -hmm. you know, it's unlimited harvest, but the limits are per zone. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So... If you harvest your limit in zone two, then you could go to zone one, one. two, or three. You could even go to, or you can go to three or four, one, three, or four, and do that as well. Mm -hmm. But typically, people are going to be moving to the higher, the zones with the higher bag mm -hmm. limits because I mean that's where the deer are more populated at. Mm -hmm. Roger from Campbell County. Uh, he wants to know good grouse hunting, a good grouse hunting WMA near northern or northeast Kentucky. It's Clay. So, um, as I mentioned before, that uh, volunteer hunter cooperator survey uh -huh. we have, we did get um, an individual that did encounter a grouse or potentially multiple grouse on Clay WMA, but um, no harvest of grouse mm -hmm. on Clay WMA. And historically, mm. there were. Do they um, put and take hunt out there? There was, there's a pheasant hunt okay. um, pheasant every year. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Pheasant it's hunt. fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's That's a what I was saying. For some sure. reason, I was thinking there was grouse there too. There but. has been periodically okay. in the past and there oh. has been more in the past now it's likely that um i wouldn't go there to grouse hunt let's just put that way. it's potential that there might be one or two out yeah. there mm -hmm. um but as far as a a good wma in the northeast hmm. kind of well i'll say this mm -hmm. when we were elk hunting this year we were in eastern kentucky on mm -hmm. coal mines and that's open public hunting or that's for open sure. hunting for the public mm -hmm. and we had grouse drumming on us no kidding yeah, yeah so i know that we we encountered grouse we didn't see them but we could hear them mm -hmm. so we, we encountered some grouse out in eastern kentucky on the coal mines i do know one i, I did a destinations on would be yatesville lake wma yatesville, they, yes. they, they have yes. some grouse on there mm -hmm. so i mean yeah. um, that would be a good one about I mean, you know, about any of those that are in the foothills or in the mountains, you're going to have grouse. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of working your butt yeah, off to find them. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, if you're not willing to hump it, you're not going to see any grouse. Oh, yeah. Would you agree with that? I completely agree with that, yeah. So, Cody, I know you're a small game biologist, but I'm sure you probably know quite a bit about deer and other species also. It's not like your interest is just one specific type of wildlife, sure, right? So, sure, right. Yeah. So this person, uh, it's uh, Samantha from Metcalf County. I'm seeing a bunch of twin fawns. Is there a reason for that? It probably means there's good breeding conditions in the area. Mm -hmm. you got really healthy deer, um, mm -hmm. and they have the ability to 
to reproduce at that level. Now, um, twins are the most common, though, right? Mm -hmm. I think I think twins. I thought I thought I'd heard that. So you're you're shaking your head. That might not be true. So well, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was sure. thinking. I know one, two, or three are all possible. And mm -hmm. for some reason, I was thinking that twins were the most common. But I do see like a lot of those it. with lung fawns too. Now, whether yeah. that's mortality, right? Who knows, right. But, I think that's a big issue too. Is there? yeah, it's pretty common. I see quite a few deer with two fawns. Mm -hmm. So I'm not I can see. definitely agree with that. Hmm. Wayne. County, or no, this is Wayne from Clay County. In zone four, can I take a doe with a bow during gun season if I wear orange? That's a yes as well. Yeah. Because you could, it's only, I know you're not allowed to take antlerless deer with a firearm in zone four, but it, that's not specific to the season dates, that's specific to what you use. The weapon. So whether it's a firearm or whether it's a bow, like you said, wear orange. Yeah, you got to wear orange. Mm -hmm. I had my orange on with my bow this past weekend. Heck yeah. Muzzleloader. Mm -hmm. Um, Brian from Christian County, will we think about shortening bow season so small game hunters will have a chance to get in the woods? That's a great question and that's something that um, we get a lot from our hardened small game hunters, um, mm -hmm. especially in this new age of kind of um, deer leases gone crazy in the state. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and. Uh, I don't think we're thinking about that now as an agency, but it's something that we definitely um, need to keep in mind as we move forward. Uh, we can't forget about our small game hunters out there. Um, well, you know, the thing is, on public land, you can go small game hunt if it's small game season. Exactly, yeah. And on no private doubt. land, it's, I mean, it's the owner's discretion. Mm -hmm. For sure. So, I mean, really, sure. it's a, that's, that's what it comes down to, in yeah. my opinion. Because I think of what he's saying is that it's, it's hard for small game hunters to get on properties to hunt when deer season's in because landowners or people are going to be there deer hunting right so really it's up to whoever owns that land what they want to allow and that's perfectly fine in my opinion mm, that's a great point. if i if mm -hmm. i if i own the land i want to be able to say oh, well this is how you know if, if it's your property do what you want with it mm -hmm. if it's public land then you can go anytime you want anyway yeah yeah so. and we encourage that too go out there huh? i think gabe jenkins told me that 90 percent of the land is privately owned here in kentucky mm -hmm. so yeah more than that actually mm -hmm. yeah yeah mm -hmm. i think so uh, Tony from Facebook, wire gates on WMAs only open during certain seasons. And this was actually, I remember this question, it's my horrible handwriting here. Um, he said, you know, they only open them during like deer and turkey season, but you know, during rabbit or, or squirrel season, a lot of times the gates are closed on the WMAs. Mm, that's a great question. And that goes back to kind of controlling access. Uh -huh. And so, um, and pressure too. So we see especially with small game on a lot of our WMAs, there's some areas that get more pressure than others. And we see that that has effects on um, sports people's ability to encounter those small game. So if we restrict the access a little bit, hopefully we'll lower that pressure down a little bit. And then so everyone can have kind of a quality experience on a mm -hmm. lot of these areas. So yeah, it's really just, okay, that makes sense to me. Trying to, because the people are in there 24 seven driving their cars and- Exactly, yeah, exactly. they put them down. 100%, and and yes. honestly, when you if you're deer hunting and you get a deer, you might need road access to get back there and retrieve it or something like right, that. Right, so exactly. It's a whole lot easier to carry a limit of squirrels, you know, a quarter mile than it is a no doubt a deer. Uh, John from Muhlenberg, do deer eat hedge apples? Yes, they do. You know, a lot of times you'll be in the woods and you'll see them smashed. That's a deer taking their hoof and actually smashing them so they can getting them open. They can well they, you know, they're kind of hard. They're kind of you know, it's hard on the outside, but then they're softer in the middle there. So a lot of times deer will smash them so they can actually eat them easier. So if you see a bunch of hedge apples smash, there's a good chance those deer have been there eating them. Do you know if any other animals eat hedge apples, small game ones? I'm sure there's some do. I mean, yeah, I'm sure squirrels. Oh, they look like them. a green brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was watching this, uh, I was deer hunting the other day on the ground, and I was next to a cut cornfield, and I saw a squirrel, you know, eating on a walnut, and there was a chipmunk out in front of me that was chewing on corn that was stuck on a cob that had been combined and left on the ground. And I was like, man, one kernel of corn ought to fill that bad boy up. <laughs> yeah, no mm -hmm. kidding. Uh, Get his yeah. cheeks full. Yeah, chipmunks are, it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, mm -hmm. They're fun to watch, especially. They are. Not too much movement. I've got a bunch of them around my house. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about acidosis? No. So basically that is, the way I understand it, it's, well, here's how the question's phrased. Prentice from Greenham County, can feeding urban deer too much corn result in them getting acidosis? So that's like, you know, when when they have one food source, mm -hmm. like it just a starch is all they get, starch, yeah, starch, yeah. starch, that negatively affects their, their body. Mm -hmm. I would say, and you know, deer in the woods, like out there browsing in, you know, a cornfield down the road mm -hmm. here, they have acorns and they have other, they might right. have wheat yeah. or something else to supplement it with, but in an urban setting, 
you know, if you're putting corn out in your backyard, that might be all those deer are eating. So mm-hmm. it can be unhealthy for them, but I don't know anything about acidosis. No, um, that's true. You got to you got to have different food sources. It has something to do with how the stomachs break down the food. So if a deer gets set to where it's only eating corn, 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 mm-hmm. and then that corn gets taken away, then their stomach isn't going to be suited to break down other food sources, and it can be really bad for them. But I, I don't know much about that. That's an interesting question, though. That is a good question. If they called in and knew the word acidosis, I would assume they probably know more about it than... so <laughs> 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 uh, I had to actually ask our, our vet how to spell that word when I was writing it down. Um, Jeremy from Rockcastle County, when is the peak of the rut? Well, that's when the most does are in heat. Do you deer hunt, Cody? Yes, yes, I sure do. Okay. Yeah, that's just, I mean, the rut completely depends on does or when the female deer go into estrus that's when the bucks are going to start really running like crazy because mm-hmm. they got something in the air there and just make them go crazy we might come back to the rut later let's see randy from marshall county have there been any reports of bears in marshall county or close to marshall county i'm not sure i'm sure that there have been bears there though well, uh, there's one good, yeah. there's one on the route in Hardin county right now yeah but okay. marshall county is kentucky lake yeah I'm have pretty they, positive there's been Have they bear. gone that far west? I'm, I'm sure they have. I mean, those bears really, they just go everywhere mm-hmm. in the spring. This time of year, well, I'm, they typically start making their way back this time of year to eastern mm-hmm. Kentucky. But Find some denning sites. And, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I mean, literally, I wouldn't be surprised to see a bear anywhere. And, I mean, I'd be surprised. Don't get me wrong. I'd be surprised. But, I mean, it's possible for one to be anywhere. I wouldn't be surprised at a report of a bear anywhere. I remember when yeah, I lived I'd in, believe it. I lived in Richmond, there was one, you know, half a mile from my house and uh there's one like i said I'm, i saw reports of one in larue and hardin county just today and i know that there was one that made his way all the way through that area into indiana last year so wow that's awesome mm-hmm. uh yeah bears are it's those small bears man they get pushed around too much they don't like it mm-hmm. they get the heck out of there um tracy from crittenden we've always had a lot of quail in our area but not so much anymore Will they try to restock quail in Crittenden, Caldwell, Lyon, or Livingston counties? So that's a really good question. And um, in the past, the department did um, give out pen-reared birds. Um, actually, where we're sitting, we were just talking about this, mm-hmm. is where we raised them up. Yeah. Um, we figured out, and a lot of a lot of people did this, a lot of states did this. They reared up quail and gave them out to landowners and stuff. And so a lot of people thought that that would work. And over time, a lot of smart, way smarter people than me have, have looked at this, and we have now figured out that that does not help. So if you look at the rural mail carrier survey for Bob White in the state, um, we started this survey in 1960 mm-hmm. and we have it um, going now still. And there's been a precipitous decline in quail over that time. And we released millions and millions of quail. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't help the yeah. statewide trend. And so mm-hmm. we're not gonna do that again because we know it does not work. Okay, I have, I had, well I don't have, I moved about three or four months ago, but I had quail in my yard i would see them driving i would like driving down my driveway and there'd be a couple mm-hmm. bob whites out there that was in shelby county and i feel like there's little populations i see on farm from time to time but mm-hmm. so why did the quail populations decline I mean, that's a great question and so the number one reason that we can point to and again um quail are arguably one of the most researched game animals of all time mm-hmm. potentially one of the research most researched animals okay. um, in the united states why is that a yeah. lot of people care a lot about them, yeah. and um, you know the hunting heritage in the southeast has been huge, yeah. um, and in the in the Midwest too, um, and we've we've witnessed um, a common species decline over time, and that's okay. been very interesting to researchers. Okay. Um, and in Kentucky, the one thing we can point to is habitat loss okay. mm-hmm. and habitat degradation. So, so that's mowing. Mowing for sure, for sure. Um, and uh, you know the way we farm now has also changed quite a bit to if you can think back in the 70s um you know there's a lot more people using cover crops maybe Mm -hmm, and they just weren't using this clean agriculture as much Um, people are letting things grow up and get more weedy and shrubby Mm -hmm. um the way we run cattle has changed so we have we've lost a lot of pasture land well we've lost about eight percent of pasture land in the state since the 80s but we've only We've lo- I'm sorry, we've lost 22% of the pasture land in the state since the 80s, uh-huh. but we've only decreased um, the amount of cattle by 8%. So we're running more cattle on less ground okay. than we ever have been. Um, so that's contributing, right? The way we farm, because um, historically, quail were a byproduct of farming practices. 
um, little tenant farms and, and um, farm mm -hmm. abandonment. So uh -huh. people moving into the city from rural areas would let those areas grow up. And quail are an early sessional habitat specialist. So that's what we call them. Um, so they, they like that fresh new growth when something's mm -hmm. just starting to... Right, right. So think of if you let an old field go, like don't bush hog an old field this year and see what happens. So it gets weedy, weeds yeah. come up, um, it gets a little shrubby. Um, quail are definitely shrubbling obligates. There was a practical aspect too. People didn't have the mechanization that they do now. Exactly. Back 100%. in the day, you had to leave things fallow because, you know, my granddad used to tell me stories about using a sickle to, to, to harvest wheat. And if you wanted corn, you didn't run a combine. You picked it yourself, put it in a bushel basket, and that's how, you know, oh, back sure. in those days, yeah. lots of the ground was fallow. Lots of the ground was overgrown because you couldn't, there's no way to, to go and clear it. No doubt, but the, yeah. the bush hog has oh, changed things been... enormously. The PTO, the power takeoff oh, of the bush yeah. hog. Yep. No doubt. Yeah, I totally and, agree with And that. maybe, uh, what, what's the role of fescue? So that's another great question. So Kentucky 31 fescue has been very detrimental to quail. Can you mm -hmm. explain fescue real quick? Yeah, so fescue um, is a cool season grass uh -huh. um, that's been planted widely in the state for cattle forage. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's a very robust forage. So it can take a it can take overstocking, it can take being pounded into the mm -hmm. dirt and it won't collapse. Um, historically um, it can it can burn up in a drought to nothing. We get a rain, it's green again. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, right, exactly. And um, and so it, it's definitely done its job in Kentucky. Um, yeah. However, it's very it's very different to native warm season grasses, which okay. is what was here historically. Um, it's a it's a natural plant that existed in Kentucky, um, and so fescue when it grows, it grows in a dense mat on the ground. And so when a quail chick hatches out of the, its egg, it's about the size of a bumblebee. Okay. And so if you can imagine that animal trying to navigate this sod forming, cool season grass, yeah. it simply can't do it. It can't access food on the ground. Okay. Um, it, can't, it can't physically move through that environment. Okay. Um, hmm. And doesn't that make them more vulnerable to avian predators as well, correct? For sure, yeah. yeah. And so this sod forming grass will suppress a lot of the natural shrubs and stuff that might come up or just in general the other plants that might give them some overhead cover from avian predators, okay. for sure. Huh. I can kind of see. You know, yeah. one of the things that, that's cool about Clay WMA is all the incredible amount of native grasses that we have out there. For sure, yeah. And if you, you know, I've been on the Pheasant, I've been out there on other things and, you know, walked miles of this stuff. And it's just <laughs> amazing the difference. Oh, yeah. And, and, and how many birds you, I mean, you flush all kinds of songbirds, you flush rabbits, you flush everything out of this, especially big blue stem and little blue stem and and just the way that it's not, it, and it's much less tiring to get through when you're walking oh, as compared yeah. to late, you know, fescue in December, which mm -hmm. is, you know, just a big giant wad on the ground. Right, um, yeah, um, I, It's been described to me that, that a field of fescue for a quail is basically a desert. Would you agree with that? That is true, yes, that's huh. true. And so, yeah, definitely. And, and Clay Demi May is a great example of what happens um, when you implement some restoration. Mm -hmm. And so most of that was fescue. Mm -hmm. um, all those open areas and those guys have been working so hard over the last few really decades since we acquired it um, to install those native warm season grasses and to do forestry work and stuff out there and they've really knocked it out of the park and, mm -hmm. and, and if you're looking for what your your place could look like if you're really interested in putting in wildlife habitat right. from an old field fescue um, situation that's a great place to go look yeah. and like you said experience the wildlife responses yeah. and um, you know one of the few WMAs where every time I've been out there I have flush quail every single time I've been out there walking oh, yeah. it's pretty good too I think Pardon? we've seen some quail on Peabody yeah and, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. they've done they've done a lot of the similar work yeah you know? that's uh, yeah that's that's interesting so a combination of people just keeping their yards and their fields a little bit you know cleaner mowing yeah. over mowing a change in farming practices mm -hmm. uh, some non-native grasses being brought in mm -hmm. uh, creating bad environments for them and then predation also that's what you said now yeah. do raccoons or skunks or anything like that take an effect on quail um, so yes, they definitely do, and that um, does that increase though. It's hard to say. Um, it's likely contributed, um, and what we'd like to tell people um, on that front is, you know, if you build high quality habitat, um, these animals will find a way to survive. Yeah. And so, again, back to the fescue example, if they're kind of wide out in the open, um, they're more vulnerable to those kind of um, issues, and so it can be a compounding factor okay. on the already existing um, habitat mm. degradation issue. 
Um, All right. So yeah. All right, Rick from Jefferson County. When can you start running rabbit dogs on Peabody WMA, and do you have to wait until season starts? So technically speaking, I don't exactly know how to answer this. It's one. online, because, though. I mean, look yeah. online. Yeah. It's technically speaking, you can run dogs as soon as um, squirrel season starts in okay. August. I don't usually like to say that because pressure is, is. a big issue at Peabody WMA. Mm -hmm. um, and whether guys realize it or not, you know, they're dogs and they are, are pressuring these birds. Whether they see them, whether they're carrying a gun. He, you was, know. he was talking about rabbits. So pressuring mm -hmm. the rabbits also. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. that's what, yeah, sorry. So whether they're seeing it or not, they're pressuring the rabbits and all the other small game out mm -hmm. there when they have their dogs out. And so it's important to practice some self-restraint for sure. It, technically, you can have your dog off leash out there um, whenever squirrel season okay. comes in because um, that's, a, that's a game species that you can hunt dogs with. Um, but I would say, you know, if at all possible, try to stick within the confines of the yeah. season. That makes sense. Um, I mean, yeah. for your own good and everybody else's good too. I mean, for sure. And yeah. if there's a question somebody has that we don't answer, don't ask, uh, then call the 1 800 number, 1 800 858 1549, and ask for an information specialist to answer their question. They'll mm -hmm. try to get it for them, or just refer to the hunting guide or look online, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. pretty much all the information's out there, and if you can't find it, you can call that. 1-800-858-1549 number, yes, yep. call our information center. And they'll try to get you taken care of. Oh, let's see, only a few more questions left here. Calvin from Elliott County, how are coyotes affecting the deer population? How do they affect small game populations? I'll ask you that. So those are two very good questions. Um, number one, they're probably, they're potentially locally, they could potentially locally affect the deer population. Statewide, they're not affecting the deer population. And I, there's research that just came out where they analyzed kind of the range-wide effect of coyotes on deer. So as you know, um, coyotes move from west to east um, yeah. across the United States. And there's some states in the east that st don't even have coyotes right now. Really? Um, I heard they were in every state in the continental. I think Delaware is the last state that does not have, I could be mistaken. Oh, Delaware? Delaware, yeah. We're talking very far east. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. Um, yeah, we should, look, we should check that out for sure. Yeah. But, um, Regardless, there's a gradient of coyote density mm -hmm. across the oh, yeah. northeast and southeast. It's pretty thick around here. I mean, you go out in sure. any yeah. part of the any part of the state, you go outside at night, and you're probably going to hear some coyotes at mm -hmm. some point. I mean, I hear them every single night when I'm deer hunting right there before dark. I mean, I'm okay. just waiting to kill a buck, and I'm going to go out there and start whacking those guys. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as deer go, I mean, the their effect on the population. My answer, I don't know if you agree with this, is not nearly the effect that a lot of other stuff has. Exactly. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, sure. automobiles are going to, mm. you know, take out a lot more percentage of right. coyotes. And I'd say that, like, farming practices probably eliminate a lot more habitat for deer than, or they could increase food sources. That might be a give and take. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that are going to affect a deer population a lot more than coyotes. Right. I mean, what a coyote's primary food source is probably a small game animal. So, mm -hmm. what do you what do you think it? So, you, is there any animal that you really do think the coyote has an effect on? I think the way you phrase it, Chase, is very accurate for small game as well. Yeah. So they are potentially having an effect, um, but it definitely is washed out in the gr the broader scheme of habitat degradation um, mm -hmm. across the state. Yeah. And so, in small game and even in in deer, we have a term called the doom surplus. So. Um, you know, animal populations ebb and flow throughout the season, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially small game, boom and bust yeah. um, cycles, even within the season. Yeah. And so the way we think about coyotes in the state is they're probably taking the doom surplus as far as um, the deer and also the small game. I mean, again, locally, What's very What's doom locally, surplus? What do you mean by that? The doom surplus is the amount of animals that are going to die just normally from weather, from predation. Um, coyotes are more likely to get us sick. Or a wounded animal, anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the, it's kind of the you know lions take the weak one. I mean, exactly, coyotes yeah. are probably going to take the weak one or the slow one or the one that is making bad decisions and wouldn't last that long or anyway. Or yeah. Right, Sick. right, exactly. Yeah. And so that's the way I like to think about it. There, there hasn't been a lot of research in Kentucky about that, but there has been a lot of research in the southeast about coyotes and deer, especially, uh -huh. um, and the effect again, super local. Potentially that could be happening, but as you mentioned, yeah. it, it's washed out in the greater scheme, um, especially statewide. 
yesterday I was at Mammoth Cave, like I think I said that earlier, and uh, we found a couple of timber rattlesnakes. And mm, I mean, some good. of these were, I mean, just the thickest snakes. One of oh, them was a, awesome. a big female. And when I was watching her crawl away, she was well over five feet long, and I mean, she was a, a beast. I wouldn't have been crawling away because I've been running the other way. <laughs> oh, we, we stopped to look at her. I'll show, you, I'll show you a picture or video on the phone. Uh, but when cool. I was looking at her, I mean, I was like, that snake is huge. Mm -hmm. And I was saying, what in the world does that thing eat all the time? I mean, because it oh, grew yeah. that big somehow. So mm -hmm. what, as far as like timber rattlesnakes, do you know whether they're feeding on chipmunks or squirrels or what is it? Yeah, likely small mammals, um, really small mammals. So yeah, shrews, voles, um, mice, uh, be terrifying rats and stuff. to be a small mammal. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Nothing that Good I, dying, I mean, yeah. if you're a small mammal, so if you're a, a chipmunk out there, let's just say that you've got snakes that are a hundred times your size mm -hmm. trying yeah, to eat you. You got you. owls at night mm -hmm. trying to swoop down and get you. Hawks in the daytime. I mean, mm -hmm. oh, that'd be horrible. Why you got these tough? giant coyotes compared to your body size. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, you know how they say if you could come back as any animal, what would it be? It would not be a small mammal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> my, my I, I'd, I'd vote for a uh, bald eagle. Yeah, bald give me, eagle, give me yeah. some kind of a mm -hmm. some kind of raptor. Apex predator, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. or a big cat, you know. Mm -hmm. All right, um, Patrick from Facebook. Where can I find gun hunting rags for WMAs? I'd look online for that one. Yeah, it's in it's in your hunting guide. It's in the hunting guide and online. I think online might be easier to find the specific mm -hmm. WMA is talking mm -hmm. about because you could type it in. Yeah. In the search box, fw.ky.gov. Get that taken care of for you. Lily from Webster County. Are there any plans to increase the quail population in Western Kentucky? Kind of already hit on that. Yeah, yes. that's another great question. Again, um, you know, we just finished up our 10-year quail plan where we um, we had many quail focus areas across the state. We had a few in West Kentucky. Um, and what we did is tried to do high-quality habitat management on those areas and to document the quail response. And we did see quail increases on those quail focus areas as the habitat increased. Um, and so right now what we're doing, we're kind of... We're wrapping up the 10-year quail plan now, and we'll have a report out. Um, stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll have a report out later this year, early next year, um, that will um, kind of sum up those results. And there are some areas, um, as there was one area in West Kentucky where we had, um, it was all on private land, and we um, were relying on the government program, uh, Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. So when people take their row crop operations and move them into conservation practices, um, and so we had an area out there where we had a lot of CRP ground on a landscape, and uh, that recently went back into row crop, and we're also so we documented the quail response to that as well. And so, right now we're trying to push, you know, people towards habitat. Um, contact your local private lands biologist. Um, these guys are experts in habitat management. They can come out um, and give you recommendations based on your objectives. So if you're looking to get quail habitat, get more quail, contact your private lands biologist and have yeah. them come out to your farm and, and have you, a look. You can find out who that is online also. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. FW.ky.gov and type in private lands biologist. You can go into the lands. maps function as well and see a map. Oh yeah, and I'll show you. That has all the private lands biologists and where your county, yeah, who's right. over your county. Basically color codes all the counties and then tells you who that person is. I know for here it's Joe Lacefield who we yeah. had on the podcast not too long ago. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I know he goes out to farms quite a bit and looks at people's you know, landscape and so they say, oh, I'm trying to improve my deer population or my rabbit population or mm -hmm. you know, give them advice on how to, how to do those things. The funny thing is if you do it for one, it typically helps everything else. Oh, so yeah, if somebody's exactly wanting to improve their rabbit population, I mean, they'd probably be working to improve their chances at quail, also. Oh yeah, and deer. Um, what do you think about? Things, yeah. What do you think about this? So we, uh, so quail are a little bit more of a, a fragile species as far as what's the word? They need a little bit more specifically the right habitat. Because deer, I mean, they can survive in a lot of places. Yes. And then rabbit is a little bit less, and quail I see as being a little bit more habitat specific there. Mm -hmm. So would you say that starting, if you focused on quail, that it would improve all the others, perhaps more than focusing on deer or focusing on rabbit would increase everything? Yeah, Chase, that's a great way to put it too, kind of that habitat hierarchy yeah. or mm -hmm. something, you know, so. That's, that's a good word for it. Yeah, I like that a lot. I've never thought of it that way, yeah. but that that's a great point that when you move backwards from, yeah, deer definitely are generalists and they are animals that are able to kind of survive in this fragmented um, agricultural landscape yeah. that they we have developed. They do pretty well, actually, I mean. Yeah, no, they've definitely, um, they've done 
unbelievably well. Yeah. Um, quail, on the other hand, you know, is the exact opposite. They yeah. they cannot survive in this um, human changed landscape that we've that we've generated, and so, but, and we know this. We have some um, quantitative information that shows, even even in Kentucky on our quail focus areas where we have, you know, put in this high quality um, quail habitat. Um, the amount of, of deer taken have been kind of in better shape, maybe um, yeah. more bucks or larger bucks and things along those lines and stuff. So a few years ago, the property I deer hunt on, um, there's a creek, and across the creek, they, they saw, so there were a couple fields split up by fingers of woods, and they'd always been a crop, right? Mm. And those got sold, and they haven't done anything with them, so they've just grown up for the past three years. I mean, it's grass is over my head. and, mm -hmm. and I never really hunted that side of the farm up until it got sold because then I started noticing, man, the good bucks are hanging out over there. There's a lot of deer over there now. And it's because of the tall grasses across across the way. I mean, it's thick cover. It's somewhere oh, yeah. to go and hide. And mm -hmm. I really think that having area on your property or area close by that's good for quail and rabbit is going to be beneficial. To, to everything. everything. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. You gotta have a diversity in the landscape. You can't just have all fields and then all hardwoods or something. It helps to have, you know, this and this and that and a little bit of everything scattered oh, yeah. around. Yeah. If you're a small game hunter, I'd say that the cropland is probably the least important of all of them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. And um, yeah, and again, historically, you know, the way we farm the cropland you know, helped us out. It was a uh, quail were a byproduct of that environment, mm -hmm. and in Kentucky now, I mean, um, we have about six million acres of open lands, whether it's cropland, pasture land, or yeah. things along those lines. So we have a great opportunity right now um, to take some of those areas, just parts and pieces of those areas, and turn them back into kind of you know shrubby areas, or let them grow up a little bit. You know, yeah. put away the bush hog, put away the mower. Um, and if we did that, man, everything would benefit. Yeah. Um, everything would really benefit from that. All you gotta do is get on Google Earth and look at Kentucky and kind of zoom in on specific areas, and you can see all the light brown. That's oh yeah. It's a you know just bare ground. Mm -hmm. It depends on what time of year the image was taken, but you know I can go through a lot of images around here were taken in the late fall or the winter, and you can see all this dirt. You mm -hmm. know, it's just dirt everywhere where the crops have been taken out, the fields mm -hmm. have been bush hogged after the. Salad has been spread, so it's uh it's pretty wild compared to what Kentucky looked like 200 years ago mm -hmm. or 300 years ago. Like what it's supposed to look like without all the people here, it's pretty ridiculous. I know you know quite a bit about the history of Kentucky, Lee. Mm -hmm. You probably know how much it's changed more than I do. Well, yeah, we've well, just mainly the the loss of of so many hardwoods, and mm -hmm. you know, there's some native grasslands that have kind of been taken yeah. away too, right? Yeah, and, oh, and yeah. fescue is you know it's. A, Fescue's also really aggressive too, is it not? Or oh yeah, oh my gosh. You, I mean, it'll just kick the crap out of anything it gets near, correct? Right, yeah, and it'll grow up underneath. So a lot of times we've seen this, um, when we install um, these conservation plantings, native warm season grasses, uh -huh. the fescue might come in underneath it and grow in between uh, the native warm season grass, which again, kind of neutralizes it um, for Bob White. Yeah. Um, if it grows up in there, it, it hampers their ability to move around in between those bunches of, of native grass. I guess something else that's probably horrible for Bob White is, uh, oh my gosh, I had the word on the tip of my tongue. It's the one katsu. That's yeah. what I was oh, getting at. Cut to, man. Out there in some places in the state, it's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's coming in bad. And historically, that was kind of an issue of the Deep South. But mm -hmm. again, with kind of with the armadillos and everything else, um, and stuff's moving And the Japanese knotweed, too. If you go along a river now and you see this broad-leafed plant that just is everywhere, mm -hmm. especially in East Kentucky, that's, that's another invasive called Japanese knotweed mm -hmm. that's taken over the world. Yeah. So do the coal mines, you know, the coal coal companies have a, an agreement. It's almost like a bond they put up on the land where mm -hmm. they have to meet certain water quality standards to get their money back from that bond, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of the reason that they plant the plants that they do because they are, you know, deep-rooted or heavy-rooted plants that are going to stop erosion and help improve water quality, right? So do you know if the plants that they are planting on the coal mines are also native or, you know, beneficial? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
No, they're not. And it's so, it's like I was, uh, the reason I was asking is because I was thinking Celeste Bediz is one I can think of right now, and that's and a really the, bad one. Uh, and Autumn Autumn bad. I was thinking about seeing those grouse on that reclaimed coal mine, and I was wondering if that had something to do with the plants that they were planting there. It might be okay for grouse, but not beneficial for other right. wildlife, right? And that's a great question. And so one of our you mentioned Peabody WMA earlier. Yeah, Peabody's a but it's there's a little bit of difference in the eastern coal coal mm-hmm. mines than the western. Yeah. It's completely different. For sure. But for so sure. Peabody, but yeah. can you explain that real quick? Because not everybody has been on Peabody and been on Revelation to know mm-hmm. the right, difference. Right. And so, a lot. I think the different, the main difference is a lot of those um, from west to east, and even in the east and in the west, the time in which those mines were reclaimed. So mm-hmm. there was there was laws that were enacted before and after the mid seventies. Yeah, the, um, the surface mining law of nineteen seventy seven was a biggie. Correct. Correct. Yes, very much so. And so that helped a lot. But this the stuff that they put back on there, um, the vegetation, the revegetation that they were trying to achieve. Again, their number one goal was to try to keep the soil in place. Yeah. And some of these um, noxious invasive plants. Um, did a really good job of that. And so mm-hmm. the problem now is they are very invasive, very aggressive, um, and they're almost impossible to get rid of at these large scales. And so at a Peabody WMA, it was three Celespides. And mm-hmm. so if you've ever been out to Peabody and you look out there, it's essentially one plant is covering the ground. Mm-hmm. And um, the managers out there have tried it, they've burned it, they've sprayed it, and you can essentially get rid of it for about three years and then it comes back in. Um, it's in the seed bank, um, it's it's a prolific spreader. Um, now what they're doing is um, moving around huge disc blocks. So they take a, a full-size tractor out there with a huge offset disc and just disc massive blocks. And that helps a lot um, yeah. for the quail. Again, it keeps it off for about three years. Um, but back to the grouse thing, um, so likely what's happening there is those animals aren't necessarily benefiting from the the vegetation they put back. They're simply benefiting from um, kind of the stage in which that vegetation is in. Okay. So grouse really key on, you know, young forest or real weedy, um, very dense, brushy areas. And so none of that really exists um, because, you know, we don't have that many clear cuts going down um, in that area. Um, not as many people are are managing their woods um, in the way that would benefit grouse. And so likely they're responding from that structural change, not necessarily the specific vegetation that's being planted out there. Gotcha. Same way with uh, the quail at Peabody. Gotcha. Um, huh. It's not necessarily the actual vegetation, but the structure. It's very open. Um, mm-hmm. and in the, at ground level, there's still some bare ground and stuff like that. So Are you guys yeah. familiar at all with how the bond works for the coal, coal mines? I think that's uh, pretty interesting. I mm-hmm. mean, and it, when well, you, it's a reclamation bond. So, yeah, it's a reclamation yeah. bond, and basically, when they are going to mine the property, they have to put. I mean, sometimes it's millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars, up in bond, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure who that goes to, but somebody has that bond money. It might be the EPA or something like that. I'm, I'm not, not sure. sure. Somebody has that bond money, and then before they can get that money back, after they have to. Yeah. After they're done mining, there's water quality tests done, and there can't be. It's like. You know, measuring the amount of uh, hard metals and, and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff in the water, and they have to meet a certain standard. And so they want their money back. They want this bond money back. Mm-hmm. So they're putting in plants and things that are going to help them meet the water quality standards, but aren't necessarily that great for the landscape. Right, <laughs> and as soon as possible. So, yeah. so that they're a lot of times. I think the reason they choose these plants is because they grow very quickly. Yeah. They spread very fast all very positive attributes for them to get their bond back and for the soil to be stabilized as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. The exact opposite, though, is true for wildlife oftentimes. Yeah. So things that grow quickly are not from this continent and all these other mm-hmm. things usually mean bad things for wildlife. And mm-hmm. so that's what we're experiencing. I know we went on a shoot maybe two years ago where uh, <clears throat> we we're trying to do some elk habitat improvement and this was going to, I mean, I think that grouse or quail were specifically mentioned in this too, but trying to remove autumn olive from mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. coal mines out there. And they took two huge caterpillar bulldozers and hooked a, a big, it might've been an anchor chain from a, a really big boat. It was like a 200,000 pound chain. And they were dragging it across the ground with those bulldozers. And like you were talking about, it, some of those plants grow back after a certain amount of time. Well, this anchor chain was uprooting all the autumn olive. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually, you know, taking the plant completely out of the ground. I thought that was kind of interesting, mm-hmm. but that's some of those oh, autumn yeah. olive is one you mentioned. So, mm-hmm. it, uh, yeah, that was a really cool project. 
Are you working on that too? I was not directly involved in it, but um, but yeah, no, that area we have, you know, we're interested in managing that area for small yeah. game, and um, I think they went back in and, and sprayed it down and stuff. I hear it's looking pretty good. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to almost see a follow-up on that, because we yeah. just went out when they were actually doing the work. Uh, Cam from Laurel County, who can hunt with a crossbow from September 21st through January 20th? I don't have the, I'm assuming those are the actual season dates for crossbow season. Yeah. Um, I know September 21st was, and I think it goes through January 20th, but mm -hmm. that's anybody with a hunting license mm -hmm. and, and a deer permit. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's um, new this year, right? Yeah, yep, that's yep. when they extended mm -hmm. it. So to hunt with one from September 7th or from opening day of bow season, which was September 7th this year through September 20th, you'd have to have a disabled permit or be over the age of 65. But mm -hmm. during the actual crossbow season dates, anybody with a hunting license and a permit and permission can do it. Uh, William from Boyle County, can a convicted felon use a bow to hunt during deer season? That is a yes. Yep, as long as it's not sure. a firearm. It's not a firearm. Yeah, crossbow. I will yeah. say that we did get somebody asked the same question, but asked her about a muzzleloader. Because you don't have to do a background check to get a muzzleloader. Or you, mm -hmm. you don't have to... There's a difference, you know, muzzleloaders you can pull off the shelf yeah. and walk to the counter with them, whereas mm -hmm. um, handguns, rifles, and shotguns are. But a, the answer to that one was a convicted felon cannot use a muzzleloader. It's still considered a firearm. Really? Yeah. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. <clears throat> we actually got a lot of uh, feedback and back and forth between different people on our Facebook post during the live show, people saying it's not a firearm, it's a replica. But uh, law says that you can't, so law says it's a firearm. Mm. All right, I think that's all the questions I'm going to go through, uh, there was a lot more answered on the show within Gabe Jenkins and uh, what was the small game guy? John Morgan. John Morgan, thank you. And uh, we had a conservation officer on there as well, answered all his questions. So That's on YouTube right now, I hope. I haven't checked to see if it's been uploaded, but it should be. Let's see. I know something Lee wanted to talk about, something he was highlighting was the mass survey for mm -hmm. this year. And yes, I, and we, I, we hit it last time. But we didn't have did. the expert here. But we did, yes. And so I'd like to, and mass crops are, I mean, I, I know they're extremely important. I think most outdoorsmen do, but they might not know exactly why. But mm -hmm. is there an animal out there that doesn't like to eat acorns? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. I mean, I, it might be size limited. So there might be some animals that simply don't have the mechanism to get at the seed. But if, if something can eat it, like Put it this way. Mm -hmm. When I was at Mammoth Cave yesterday and I was walking through the hardwoods, there was oaks and there were squirrels going crazy. Squirrels, oh, yeah. squirrels everywhere. Mm -hmm. When we were elk hunting, we focused on the acorns because that's what the elk were eating. And we happened to see bear because that's what the bears were eating. Mm -hmm. And if you're a deer hunter, you want to look at the acorns. I don't know if turkeys, do yeah. turkey consume acorns? For sure, for sure. Turkey. So yeah, pretty much any game species you want to go after, food source is a great place to find them. And acorns are pretty much a preferred food source for almost everything. Mm -hmm. So this is telling us about where to find the game or what's going on with the main food source, right? True, yeah, that's exactly correct. Um, yep. And we're just kind of starting to crack the egg on trying to um, maybe predict some of the those game responses to the mass survey. Okay, so, what do you, so stay tuned for that. What, what do you mean by that? So we're trying to predict. So this is something you're going to be working on. Right, yeah. And so we do this mass survey um, in August. Okay. And so, you know, we should be able to make some predictions about the hunting season yeah. um, before a lot of the hunting season um, stuff comes in. And so we're working on that and trying to see, you know, if we can kind of get better at at predicting what's going to happen and so for example you know last year um, on the mass report you know we kind of predicted what was going to happen with the mass this year and we were pretty close and this is all based on um, you know we've been doing this mass survey for a really long time so we can look watch trends and see how everything comes and goes and again this mass stuff is is generally speaking cyclic in nature and so we can kind of mm -hmm. predict uh, what the next year is going to be like yeah okay so what did you find out this year so this year, there's not going to be a lot of mast in the woods, um, especially compared to last year. Okay. Um, and so... Why, do you know why? So, okay, let's run through the numbers real quick. Okay. Tell me what you mean compared to last year. Okay, so I'll give you the numbers here. Um, so in 2018, um, so we do the mast survey on four groups of trees. Okay. Um, red oak group, white oak group, hickory group, mm. and beach group, which is a single tree American beach in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and so these are kind of the four most important masting species in the woods. Um, and so last year for our red oaks, um, 
we gave that a rating of good. Uh -huh. um, our white oak last year, the rating was average. Our hickory rating last year was good. Uh -huh. um, I remember last year, I mean, the limbs were bent over with hickory nuts. Um, mm -hmm. And so the beach for last year was rated as poor. And so now this year, the red oak has been rated as poor. The white oak was a failure. The hickory was rated as a failure. And the beach was actually rated as an average. So huh. beach is the only thing that it's, has gotten better from last year to yeah. this year. But it's still um, just an average. Everything else went to correct. poor or failure. Exactly, yeah. Do you know why that is? Is it the wa the weather, the drought? Was it the, the heavy rains? Or So that's a really good question. we had everything mm -hmm. this year. We went right. from super heavy rains and flooding to a barren. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what I, you know, it was such a crazy year. I mean, we had record Lake Cumberland levels in February, mm. 754 above sea level, and then it hit the 1st of July and quit raining. Right, yeah. right. September was the driest month on record, On record, it? Not, yeah. yeah. All time, any month. Yeah, and I, I really want to go back to that, but to answer your question about why we had a good year last year and a bad year this year, that's a really good question and a really interesting question. So. Something really interesting happens with tree masting. So the trees will put on a whole bunch of mass one year and then go bust the next year because um, over time, kind of tactics have evolved with trees to try to get the most bang out of their buck. So mm -hmm. they'll go huge one year and then um, they'll go bust the next year. So they'll go bust and try to get rid of all those seed predators. So all the animals that eat mass oh. and stuff like that. So they're hmm. they're totally. Um, synced with the mass. So think of like the squirrel population, for example. Yeah. If there's a really good mass year, you know, those squirrels can eat a whole bunch of mass, get good and fat, and reproduce and have maybe more um, squirrels offspring yeah. and yeah. stuff like mm -hmm. that. And then so the trees will be going for many years, they'll be having an average mass year, and then one year, boom, it'll just be really terrible. And that's so they're trying to shed those mast, those seed predators, essentially. Mm -hmm. The birds, everything that eats mast. Um, their populations will hopefully go down, and then the next few years, the massing trees will see will go up in their in their mast rating. So they'll they'll put more seed on the ground after they've had a few years of failure. That seems hmm. strange. It almost it's, makes me feel like the trees got a little brain. Yeah, no, oh no, yeah, no, that, that's it's, amazing. It's so amazing. That is yeah, amazing. It's super cool. But I'm sure that, that that happens, not necessarily at random, but. I mean, like, okay, well, like I said, it seems like the tree is, like, seeing these squirrels eating all the acorns, and it's like, well, you know what, next year, bam, and I'm not going to give you any. But right, right. But really, it just, I mean, it's all biological for the tree, right? It's a, something, they're on, they're on that cycle. Yeah, Like you said, exactly. nature runs on a cycle. You said earlier seven years for certain for small, small mm -hmm. I hear seven years quite a bit. For fishing and lakes, I'm sure you really? have before mm -hmm. we, okay. like, there's a seven-year cycle on a lot out there. Right. That's amazing, though. I never knew that. Oh, that no, Some trees will just amazing. go boom. Right. Boom to bust. And there is some, there's some information that's even more kind of mind-blowing is they'll do this um, kind of synchronously. So if all the oaks in a stand, this is the year they're going to go bust, all the oaks, they're pretty synchronous on their mass wow. production. Huh. And so this is, you know, you can have different ages of trees and all kind of at once. Whether, again, this is probably they're keying in on some weather variable or some yeah. something that we don't exactly so, know about. But. That, that's, that makes sense. That's a good biological reason for it to happen. I was thinking, you know, maybe this drought, just they, you know, at the very end, they decide to hold their energy. I, I yeah. didn't know, but that's a that's interesting. Mm -hmm. and you know what? Somebody's mowing out there, Lee. I haven't mowed my yard in over a month. Uh, well, yeah. I, I mowed mine last weekend for the first time in a long time. Okay. I, haven't, I just haven't had to. I could probably it's take the weed eater out and touch it up around the edges or yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's about what I need to do, but till we get more rain, I'm just... Yeah. So I think Lee t ran through some numbers. It was like 6% of white mm -hmm. oaks are producing. Yep. Is that something that you saw? Yeah, yeah. that's that. And 23% of red oak, 13% of hickory, and 39% of beech. So let me ask you this. If you did find an oak tree on your property that was producing, would that be an even hotter spot this year? For sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And so, and back to the no rain in September comment, mm -hmm. um, what I think has happened is, so that did affect when the mass came down out of the trees. Yeah. And so, you know, last year we're kind of seeing, um, when I do, when we do our mass survey in August, um, you know, rarely do I see a lot of mass on the ground. This August, I, mean, I was seeing some mm -hmm. of this year's mass on the ground. And I think those trees, um, due to that lack of rain, were shedding some of their acorns early. 
Um, and so, yeah, def it's going to be a hot commodity early. Well, yeah. Really? Okay, yeah. So yeah. typically when you go through and do a mass survey, you're looking into the trees and actually, how do you, is it by estimated weight or estimated number? Do you count like a specific area and then kind of assume that's, how, do, how does that work? How do you yeah, do a so mass survey? Yeah, really, that's a really great question. And I'll go back to, so we started this mass survey in 1982. And in 1982, we kind of just handed out this card um, to our biologists across the state. And they would just kind of try to remember what they'd seen um, throughout the last few weeks and then write that down on this card. Um, and so we did that for a few years. And then there was some current research that came out um, in the Appalachian region um, about this new um, kind of quantitative rapid mass assessment. And so we looked into that and said like, hey, this looks pretty good, we're gonna do that. And so starting in 2007 um, and all the way to currently now, what we do is we walk up to a tree um, in our mass survey route and we have binoculars and we look up in the tree for 30 seconds and we assess of that tree, of the crown, of the limbs, of the twigs, of that tree that could potentially be bearing mast, what percent is currently bearing mast. Okay. Um, and so that's the way we do it. And we have 25 trees per route, 25 trees per tree group. So 25 red oak trees, uh -huh. 25 white oaks, 25 beach, and 25 okay. hickory trees. Okay. Huh. That'd be a so great story to go along with y'all sometime. Oh, no doubt, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So 30 seconds, that's a pretty hard number. Sounds like you guys mm -hmm. basically timed that. Yeah, and uh, stopwatch and binoculars. So then when you're, so that's 6%, you're assessing the tree, you say, oh, okay, this one, you know, 25% of the tree that could produce has, has got it. So then do you take that number you get for each tree and then just average it out at the end? Right, yeah, so those numbers I mentioned earlier, um, of all four groups combined, uh, there's 2,245 trees represented in those numbers. And so okay. we average those out across the state. Okay. And it, okay, that makes sense. That's kind of mm -hmm. it's a good way to know. It's it, so things could be different on an individual property. Mm -hmm. Like somebody might have a farm. Exactly. They're like, yeah. they're I like, well, I have a pin oak that's throwing giant. Yeah. No kidding. Acorns right now. I mean, the yeah. biggest I've seen in years. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, but it's it's I have a offspring of it's in the neighbors. I have an offspring that's just dropping little teeny weenies. Really? So far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And individual trees will. Um, in, in, in certain areas too, and, and that's a really good point. And, and some of these routes, we try to have um, you know trees in the holler, trees up at the top of the ridge and stuff, because mm -hmm. that stuff can change too, because those mm -hmm. that um, fine scale uh, weather changes. Um, Are these trees too. marked in any specific way? Yeah, so it depends on the the survey, but we go back to the same tree every single year. Yeah, I didn't know because it seems like you'd almost have to have some kind of a yeah. A GPS coordinate, or oh yeah, so we have GPS coordinates. Each tree is either spray painted or tree tagged or marked in some way, um, so the surveyor can go back to that tree. Do you know if there are any at Mammoth Cave? Yeah, there is a survey route on Mammoth Cave. Because I was out there the other day, I went out. I told you, so it's this gravel road I was walking down, mm -hmm. and I mean, they, I told you there was oaks everywhere, and there were some that were hit with a pink spray paint. And I didn't know if that could potentially, because I didn't even think about yeah. it potentially being for this until until you just mentioned that. But it would be a route somebody could easily walk and exactly. But yeah. it was and that's like, what we look for is you know kind of ease of access for the survey, but also trying to capture yeah. different microclimates and stuff mm -hmm. in the woods. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah, interesting. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Maybe I walked past one of those trees yesterday and didn't even realize it until I yeah. sat down in here. You know, I saw yeah. a blue jay eating those little acorns out of the tree. Just no tearing kidding. it up the other day. I've never really? seen a blue blue jay eating tiny acorns. So. Blue jays are, in my opinion, the meanest bird. Oh, my grandmother, she <laughs> no, thought yeah, they were yeah. mean. She said they were the bird with no pants on. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't stand them. You, know, you just watch how they act towards the other birds. They aren't mean to me personally. Yeah. You know? yeah, like, yeah. I'm not offended by them in any way, but they, uh, they're they just the meanest to the other birds, man. Mm -hmm. they're, you got oh, a yeah. bird feeder out there or something like that? Oh, yeah, they'll they're running them off. They'll yeah. run them off. Mm -hmm. They're tough, man. Somebody ought to, there are some Blue Jay mascots. There's a hockey team that's the Blue Blue Jays, right? Toronto Blue Jays, isn't it? Yeah, Toronto Blue Jays, too. Yeah. Baseball. Yeah, yeah, there's no basketball or football Blue Jays. So, um, what's the state of soft mast? Uh, I saw you talking to John Hast before. What is soft mast? Can you define that for me? Yeah. Or give me an example. People don't even think about it. Like that. a pawpaw or a, mm -hmm. yeah, or so a any, um, persimmon or something? Yeah, persimmon, pawpaw, fruit, blackberry. Mm -hmm. um, the fruits. Yeah, but, the fruits, the fruits. Okay. Yeah, and so. This survey that I was just talking about, it's a hard mass survey. Um, historically, we did do soft mass, so we asked individuals on that card I was talking about um, in the 80s, we'd ask them about soft mass. Currently, we don't have any survey um, in the division for soft mast. Um, but anecdotally, it sounds like it was a decent year for soft mast. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so that we definitely know. So is it more consistent? Is that why the soft mask pretty consistent year to year compared to? It seems to, to be more reliant um, on weather variables. Um, but uh, as far as consistency, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure about that as far as year to year. We huh. had pawpaw trees growing up on property. Oh, I know nice. that yeah. Yeah. Well, pawpaw, I don't, see, I don't mm -hmm. see a ton of pawpaw trees, but persimmons are a hot spot for deer. I mean, you're looking mm -hmm. for oh, squirrel okay. or anything, really. But. Yeah. You ever bitten into an unripe persimmon? Oh, God, I did. I've done that before a couple of times. It makes those uh, super sours look like a wimp. Well, it's right? yeah. I feel like it made my, my mouth like, go numb. Yeah, and yeah, it co yeah. like coated your mouth yeah. in some kind of like almost yeah. petroleum or something. It right. was heinous. Yeah. One of my buddies uh, this year, we were on no land fishing, and I never had bitten into a persimmon, and even a ripe one. Mm. He picked some. He said, here, Chase, try this. And I was like, it doesn't feel quite ripe yet. Oh, it's good. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. bit into him. I felt like my mouth was numb for the next half an hour. <laughs> right. Was he laughing? Oh, yeah. But then, <laughs> I mean, he had a whole handful of them in there. We ended up having like 14 people on the boat with us, <laughs> and then he gave everybody one. <laughs> he was like trying to, and of course, after you got got by the joke, you couldn't run it for the next person. So no, I no. think by the end of the day, he yeah. got everybody there to eat a raw, unripe. Chalky palm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's interesting. What else you want to talk about, Lee? I was—I mean, we, we probably need to wrap it up here pretty quick. It's yeah, been yeah, we've been going, yeah. But, oh, well, uh, you know, one was state of quail, but you covered that. Mm -hmm. uh, soft mass looks good. You covered that. Um, white oat and hickory failure. Um, one of the things you brought up in the article that we uh, did is um, how this will impact deer movement. Mm -hmm. And it'll it'll help hunting, believe it or not, correct? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, that's a good point. It sounds almost counterintuitive um, at first, but if you think about it, there's less mass in the woods, and so this is going to help um, hunters encounter game. So mm -hmm. game has to move more now to find resources, and yeah. as we know, when game moves, they're more likely to be encountered by sports people. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting good early reports for squirrel. I mean, squirrel season sounds like people are doing really good yeah. out there now for that. And it sounds like... Um, well, part of that could be the high mass last year. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And uh, so now, yeah, we have we have fewer resources out there, um, potentially for more small game. And so we're going to see. Hopefully, you'll encounter more game this year, especially animals that, that target uh, hard mass for sure. And yeah, that could be a good or bad for a deer hunter because for me personally, I don't like the animals moving around. It sounds really weird, mm -hmm. but I like to locate the animal and have them stay right there where I want them, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But if you're out there, like for gun season, I can definitely see it being useful, or if you're looking for a new animal to show up in your area, it could be useful, but no doubt. like me right now, I've got this one buck that I'm really wanting, and I would personally prefer him stay in one area, because it would be much easier for me to hunt him. Right. But like the other day, I was, I got a, I have a cell camera, and I got a picture of him at one o'clock in the morning, and I woke up, and I was like, oh boy, he's he's in those those woods now. Like, I know where he's at. Went out there and I was hunting. I didn't see him, but I did probably see eight or nine other deer, all does and fawns for the most part, move from that patch of woods where I got the picture of him at. And I watched them walk 800 yards across a field to a, a completely different area. And then I was in my mind kind of thinking, well, heck, he might be half a mile away right now. Mm -hmm. Like, if they're all willing to move that far right now, then I, I'm having a really hard time specifically keying in mm -hmm. on where this deer could be. So for seeing movement, I, I'd say it's definitely a good thing, but mm -hmm. depending on your hunting strategies, it oh, could yeah. also be it could also be tough. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's something to consider um, when you guys mm -hmm. are going to field yeah. this year. Mm -hmm. Good sure. for sportsmen in general, put it that way. Yeah, I Because, I mean, that. like right now, those guys hunting the farm next to me have a great chance of seeing that buck as well, which, <laughs> right, is, great, right. which is good for everybody, yeah, but not, everybody, so, right. not so good for... Yeah, that's just how it kind of works. But mm -hmm. that's, that's an interesting point, because I was thinking they could be more densely keyed, keyed in on a specific area if the mass crop was weaker, but at the same time, those acorns aren't going to last forever. You got squirrels exactly. and you got all those, I mean, they can clean up the ground pretty quick. Oh yeah, they're probably hammering it right now, because I do think that the little rain in September, I think that the mass fell Dropped off right. earlier than yeah. it usually does, mm -hmm. and so right now they're probably hammering it, but by the time we get into modern gun, they're going to I know when I was out there doing some, uh, tree stand work in late August. I did see quite a few acorns on the ground under one oak. I haven't been back to that tree to check it lately, but I mean, it was on the edge of a cornfield and as I was walking through the standing corn, I mean, I was crunching over acorns and stuff. So okay. I agree with you on that. You got anything else that you want to talk about real quick? I think we're good. I think it's almost lunchtime. Mm -hmm. I'm starving. So yeah, well, yeah this is definitely lunchtime. Let's do that real quick. I'll tell you that 
Uh, Clemson and Georgia were just too good. Yes. Uh, disappointed in Kentucky's offense, but I don't think in that slop, slop fest down there that you can really. Well, I think they wanted to save Sawyer just in case, you know. Limbo? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I he, he played great against Arkansas. He has a lot, better, lot worse defense than well, he went against My opinion there. on that is it was a, a poor weather game. I didn't get to watch it because mm -hmm. I was doing the call-in show. It sounded like a poor weather game where throwing it was going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. And I know they were getting pressure on Bowden, and he was having to scramble mm -hmm. in the pocket. So if you can't keep Bowden safe in the pocket, you're not going to be able to keep Sawyer safe in the mm -hmm. pocket. And if throwing it's not very feasible, then... It's a good idea to save him, let that shoulder heal. Cause, you yeah. Know, right I would, yeah. And then for, for Louisville, they, uh, they just don't have enough bodies. They got worn down. Clemson's just too big and too powerful. Yeah. And eventually they... And Georgia did the same thing. Defense, I thought, played the best game of the year, though. Oh, they did. And that's the problem. Offense didn't help them out. Yeah. I mean, when you hold Georgia scoreless in the first half on the road, mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. good. Yeah. You take that all day. Mm -hmm. yeah, but we had zero passing yards in the first half. I did see that. I was checking the updates on my phone. Yeah, it was just, you know. So this week, Louisville has UVA, mm -hmm. which is supposedly the second best team in the ACC right now. That mm -hmm. week. I think Louisville could, could win that game, personally. And uh, Kentucky has Missouri. I hope Kentucky wins the game, but I have no idea what our offense well, is going to look like. No, no. It, it depends. If, I hope Sawyer can come back. Maybe they were looking ahead to this game to save him. Yeah. Because, I mean, we have winnable games from here on out. You know, the, the, oh, we yeah. got one, you know. Well, that's so the same thing with Louisville. They have five games they think are winnable, which includes the Kentucky game. Mm -hmm. Kentucky is back into the season is pretty dang winnable, too. Mm -hmm. now, I'm looking ahead to this UofL-UK game like mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what to think. I mean, a bowl berth could be on the line for both teams, so it could be a slugfest. I'll be honest with you, I'm a UK fan personally, but at this point, just seeing how the teams are doing, mm -hmm. I think Louisville is, has the edge up. I know that the line has moved nine points in Louisville's favor. Yeah. So it's, I, I just wish Kentucky had a quarterback. If mm -hmm. we didn't have all the injuries, I'd be. We'd be in a lot better shape. Yeah, when touchdown Terry went down, I saw him grab that knee. I went, oh, no. Yeah. My, my guts fell, you know, yeah. my stomach. I was like, this is not that, good. That could be the best game of the year for both teams, the most mm -hmm. evenly matched game of the year. We'll see. Satterfield has those guys rolling in a little but bit. But Vanderbilt beat Missouri, so and Vanderbilt's the worst team in the conference. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's anybody's game. You know. Yeah, who knows, man? It's football. Yeah, yeah college happen. football. Hey, but, uh, That's why it's fun. Mm -hmm. Basketball's around the corner, so I'm looking forward to that. All right, guys. Hey, Cody, I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, thanks, And uh, educate. Hopefully that was fun for you. Uh, check out the Fall Fishing Festival on uh, fw.ky.gov. We got some articles up. Uh, Is fall fishing fish. frenzy or festival? festival? Spring fishing frenzy, Fall Fishing Festival. Festival sounds mm -hmm. like a get together. Like we should all. Well, you know, we we did that because you know I'm, I I grew up going to the tobacco festival in Bloomfield. I mean, there's the sorghum festival, ham days. I've been I mean, to I've been know. to the other two. I've been to sorghum and I've been to. Ham days, you know, mm -hmm. that's Lebanon for ham days, and sorghum is is Springfield. Springfield, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've been to those two before, and I can't remember. Danville has one too, I believe, mm -hmm. of some type. And I was just randomly driving through Danville one day, not doing, and I saw this festival going on, so I stopped, and it was pretty fun. Live so that's why we said festival because it's typical in fall. But yeah. just did one on reservoir smallmouth should be heating up. I've, I'm hearing people catch them in Cumberland on the Ned Rig now. I'm so. looking forward to going and doing some some good smallie fishing. Me too. It's yeah. getting to be that. My favorite time of year to fish, believe it or not, on big lakes is now. Oh, I like right. November I like on. Give me, yeah. the, give me the cold, cold weather. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. now, from now on to next late April, early May, my favorite time. I'm just looking forward to getting this deer down so I can start. I mean, it feels like it's consuming me this time of year. <laughs> and I would love to take my dog out and, and do some other types of hunting. And I would love to go fishing. But right now, it's like every time yeah. I get a chance to go do something, I feel like that's what I need to be doing. Yeah, I hear first you. things first. The no Orange doubt. Army is coming. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. So I got to get myself as a bow hunter. I got to get done with that. So mm -hmm. anyway, I appreciate you guys coming on. All right, man. Thanks so much.